Ethan and Benjamin Castle are Americans. Watching the footy. Liam Ryan saying, kick it my way. I want to jump over the pack and here he comes. This is Americans Watching the Footy. This is our 45th episode. This is our Round 18 preview. I am Ethan Castle coming to you from South San Francisco, California. I am Benjamin Castle also coming to you from South San Francisco, California. Funny how that works. The finals race has really taken shape. We said in our Round 17 recap that we think the teams that are currently in the eight are going to be the final eight. But there are some games this round that could help shape that, including a couple of potential eliminators, basically win-or-you're-fucked type games. But before we get into all that, we have a few news items to attend to. We mentioned at the very end of last episode that David Noble was fired by North Melbourne, but we didn't really spend any time talking about it. Now we're going to do that. Weird timing with it coming after what I thought was their best performance of the year. You could argue between last round and round four. Was it that the players knew ahead of time and were motivated to turn over a new leaf? I'm not exactly sure, but it strikes me as very strange that they gave that sort of performance and then Noble got the axe. I don't know if having Lee Adams coach these next six games is going to offer much more than what they would have if Noble just rode the season out. But I think this is an indictment on... North Melbourne altogether, because Adams is about to become their fourth coach in a four-year period. Brad Scott was there from 2010 to 2019, did a pretty solid job. However, held the record before Ken Hinckley took it from him of most games coached with a team without making a grand final. Then came Reese Shaw, who first was the interim and then got the full-time job. That didn't last very long. Then David Noble, and now here comes number four. And if you have that much coaching turnover in that short of a window, that's a sign of a dysfunctional club. The whole organization looks bad for this, and it does start at the top with Ben Amarvio, who is now saying, hey, we're in talks for a priority pick, because yeah, one more 18-year-old is really what this organization needs. What they need instead is for the league to come in and honestly kind of coddle them like an expansion club, like how they helped the Greater Western City Giants hire Kevin Sheedy, and how they had that structure from the beginning. I think the AFL needs to come in and help North hire a new head coach and CEO to get them on the right foot going forward. I don't know if that's something where the league should step in. I don't think the league needs to step in and interfere unless there's, you know, financial troubles. And if there are, then maybe another option that has been floated is increasing the soft cap space to hire coaches. The question is now... Even with the financial reward that could come from taking the job, who wants to walk into this sort of situation? 
that's the thing. At this point, when you've had this many changes, you're probably not going to get someone you really want unless you have you're some young hotshot who you think could be the next great thing and you want to take a shot on him before anyone else does. But again, four coaches in four years is not something that happens for a winning organization. Now, this is kind of a chicken and egg relationship. You don't know which comes first, the constant turnover or the losing. You know, the two kind of create each other, whether it's bad culture, bad hires, whatever came first to start this whole mess, it hasn't stopped. I'm reminded of a quote from recently retired baseball player Buster Posey, who during his retirement ceremony said basically that he was fortunate to play for a good organization because there some organizations know how to win and some don't. And I think that applies here. By the way, North, Adam Simpson is not the answer. I know he's one of your own. He ain't the right guy. I see two paths that North can take. One of them would have even more turnover. It would be... You know, hire an older guy whose job is to get everyone's shit together, line things up, right the ship, and then pass it off to someone else who can handle things when the state of affairs is better. Or some sort of coaching succession plan established from the beginning then? Like a limited term for the first guy? Yeah, that sort of idea. Okay, we've seen that before. Coaching succession plans are how, for example, Simon Goodwin took the reins at Melbourne from Paul Roos. But you'd need someone who's both good enough at their job and selfless enough to want to do that because a lot of older coaches would probably rather just go to a team with a shot to win right now. (laughs) That was the date. I know. You know, if a job like the Bulldogs or Power opened up where it's, hey, we have a win-now core, let's do that, and then by the time they start rebuilding, then it can be someone else's problem, and we can just go all in right now. The alternative is, like I said, go with the young guy who hasn't had any head coaching experience at this level. It'll be a risk, and you better find the right one, because if you don't, this chain is going to continue. Well, we've seen a few caretakers get... Well, we've seen a few guys get stabs at caretakers this year and they've been successful, maybe you start looking at one of those. There are certainly options out there. Again, though, it's going to be hard to find someone who wants this job right now. I can see it now. North Melbourne hires David Teague. Out of the caretakers this year, though, I'd say Ash Hansen from Carlton is the one that I look at first because of his positive record as a VFL coach. I believe he led Footscray to a premiership in the reserves. I also want to mention that whoever they hire is probably not going to be received immediately as a great hire because of their track record, whereas some clubs are in such good standing that any move they make, people will instantly look at and say, yeah, great job. It's kind of like, you know, the baseball equivalent. Love this trade for the Rays. Who'd they get? Who'd they give up? I can think of a coaching change like that. Chris Scott was handed an excellent team when Mark Thompson left, won a premiership in his first year, waiting on the second. It's funny, I was super critical of Chris Scott's coaching last year. I think he's done a very good job this year, and we'll get into that in the middle of our previews, because as we go in sequential order, that one will come up during a ridiculously good two-pack of games that should not be scheduled up against each other. Instead, it's actually North Melbourne that has a standalone slot when they take on Richmond in the middle of Saturday action. I guess that's now interesting for other reasons. Other notes, we have received the unfortunate news of the passing of Willie Rioli Sr., who was 50, 
He died of a heart attack. Not only was he a legend in Northern Territory football, he also did a lot of work as a ranger managing fires. And that's just amazing to me that he had such a full career outside of football. And if you look at some of the old photos of him, I think he actually looks more like Morris than he does Willie. Northern Territory as well as an excellent run with South Fremantle and the Waffle. So it's no wonder that his son, even though he's had a whole bunch of stuff going against him, was received so well upon entering the Eagles. The Rioli family is a great football story that we're glad to see continue. And as one generation passes on, hopefully the next ones will continue to hold it up, if not strengthen it even further. I've been critical of some of Willie Jr.'s on-field antics this year, but Obviously, we wish him well at this time. He's understandably not going to play this week, and hopefully he's back out there soon. It seems like heart attacks at a young age have been especially prevalent in the AFL world over these last couple years, and especially in the Aboriginal community. I did some very preliminary research, and it seems like between genetics and environmental factors, heart problems tend to be more common in the Aboriginal community. So hopefully that's something that's improved in the coming years. And AFL is no stranger to heart issues to begin with. It's common for players that do a lot of hard running in any sport. And I thoroughly expect that the league is mindful of that and is working with medical fields to see what they could do potentially in training and in treatment to address those issues. Looking a few years down the line, the GABA will need to be renovated ahead of the 2032 Brisbane and Southeast Queensland Olympics. So that means the Lions will be displaced for a while. There are questions about where they may go. Might they be at their training facility, the Brighton Homes Arena, which is just about to be done? Will they be forced to go back to the Gold Coast where they began their life as the Bears? Presently, it looks like the Lions are in talks to play at the Brisbane Showground and would have a temporary 20,000-seat stadium there. That was the option that I particularly favored in the first place because it's pretty easy and sustainable to make these temporary stadiums. Now, we've seen some successes in other sports in recent years. We saw it in Canada with the BC Lions Canadian football team and Vancouver Whitecaps soccer team sharing one when BC Place was being renovated. We've seen it in the World Cup this year for everything that goes against it as a completely sustainable stadium. There were a bunch of temporary venues for the 2012 Olympics. So I guess these innovations could do the AFL some good as well. Plus, if we keep the Lions a lot closer to their home base, there's no fun in having to drive into the Gold Coast traffic to try to get to a football game when your fan base is largely an hour to the north. You know what the NHL would do? They'd have them play in a 5,000-seat venue shared with the college. That's what the Arizona Coyotes are doing for the short term. You know, I don't normally wish relocation on any team. I usually hope they can work it out in their current location. I hope the Coyotes get the hell out of Arizona and go to Milwaukee where they belong. Or Houston. Bring back the Houston Arrows. Or Quebec or Kansas City. I think Milwaukee would be the best of those, but get them out of Arizona. They're a failure of a franchise and need to be forgotten to history. I don't really have a comparison of a failed franchise as a whole with the AFL. You can say what you want about North. We've already said our piece about them in the short term. GWS need to more consistently have games in Sydney. I get that they have the deal with Canberra, but they've struggled building up a real home base in New South Wales because of that deal, honestly. Well, what if they considered Canberra a part of Raider Western Sydney? Fuck it. They actually get good support there. 
Or how about you have teams 19 and 20 come in at the same time, one in Tasmania and one in Canberra. And hey, look, new rival for the Giants that way. Before we get on to that, though, we've got 18 teams that give us more than enough to talk about right now. As we begin our round 18 preview, unfortunately, or fortunately for Australians mostly, Thursday night footy is done for the year. So while that does mean we have a little bit more time to turn this episode around and finish with things in post-production, it does mean that the schedule is a bit more cramped. So we're going to get things going, talking about the Friday night game, which is pretty much, at this point, I know you've said, and I would tend to agree, a finals eliminator as the Bulldogs and Saints square off at Marvel Stadium. Technically, the Bulldogs are the home team, but I mean, they both play their home games there. So what difference does it really make? This one will get underway on Friday, July 15th, 2.50 a.m. Pacific time on the West Coast of the United States. The first game I'll be watching is a 26-year-old. It'll be at 5.50 a.m. on the East Coast and in Melbourne, of course, 7.50 local time. This game will be televised on Fox Soccer Plus in the United States. The Bulldogs enter at 8-8 eight eight in 10th place after falling in their rematch with the Swans last round and falling for them pretty unspectacularly. It was a spectacular win for the Swans in multiple ways, but the Dogs just looked out of sorts, and you can really tell how much their outs in the back third are hurting them. Meanwhile, the Saints got off to a good start against Fremantle, kept pace with them, did well in center clearances, and then really fell off in the third quarter. They fell to 9-7 and seven and remained in ninth on the ladder. These teams last played each other in round 10 last year, also at Marvel Stadium, and the Bulldogs blew the Saints the fuck out, beating them by 111 points, 144-33, the Dogs' largest ever win over St. Kilda. However, the Saints did win the second elimination final in 2020, 67-64 at the Gabba. On the personnel front, obviously the big one is Bailey Smith's return after a four-game set of suspensions, two for a headbutt, two for a headbutt where he butted his head into drugs. I guess you can call it that. You know, you could call, at least there's an American term for like a small pinch of cocaine, like taking a bump. So I guess it could be a head bump because, you know, you snorted up your nose and your nose is attached to your head. If you explain the joke, it isn't as funny. Well, I don't know if Australians use the same term. COVID has hit both teams in this round opener hard, and no player is a more important COVID out than Aaron Naughton. The astronaut initially had a knee concern that may have kept him out. Well, he's out regardless of that now, and that makes Josh Bruce's return all the more imperative to make up for his goal-scoring impact. I think at this point, if he's even at 75%, you got to give it a go. You got to pull out all the stops if you're the Bulldogs, because you need to win five of your last six games. Two more COVID outs for the Dogs and Josh Shackey and Lockie Hunter. Jordan Sweet has been recalled. He'll be a second ruck in all likelihood, as well as maybe having some goal square opportunities when English is toward the midfield. Buku Kamis also recalled. Interestingly, set up to play at full back. At least that's where he is in the starting lineup. They'll also need to fill Anthony Scott's position. He is in concussion protocols. The biggest injury news for the Dogs is arguably that Caleb Daniel needs another week with his knee injury. We've seen just how bad they've looked defensively in those last two games without him. He and Taylor DeRay are both are both missing back there. 
There's a question of which one hurts more. Regardless, they don't look good with either of them out, and they're without them both right now. As for the Saints, Marcus Windhager and Seb Ross are both in COVID protocols. Ben Long and Derek Joyce omitted. Ben Patton, Cooper Sharman, and Ryan Burns all returning. Sharman is one to which I particularly take notice. My biggest question is understandably about the Bulldogs' defense. Specifically, how the hell are they going to match up with Max King? Could you try to throw Tim English into a more defensive role? Are you going to rely on Alex Keith? Well, that's definitely a spot where the Saints could overwhelm the Bulldogs between Max King, whichever Ruck pushes forward, Tim Membry. If they have all three targets there, I can't see a way in which the Dogs are able to cover all of them. And Richards can do an admirable job on one guy, Alex Keith on another. The third is going to present issues unless you move English back. They could really use a Mark Blitzobs for a game like this. And it's not like you can just loan him like soccer. The line on this game surprises me. It's Bulldogs by six and a half on Bovada. Just thrown off by it, I guess, given the outs. It was minus eight and a half to the Dogs before the list announcements. The more I think about it, the more I think the Saints should be favored. That said, the Bulldogs can and should be the superior team in their forward 50. With Smith returning and having his long kicking ability could allow Bonapelli to have more time there. Hopefully Adam Trelore does more half forward and following work as opposed to, for some reason, being stationed in the half back line. And then also Dougal Howard is a pretty big out for the Saints back there. That said, I'm looking at this game through the lens of what is the biggest mismatch? And that should be the Bulldogs' inability to stop the Saints' tall forwards, which I think the level of mismatch there cancels out any advantage the Dogs have elsewhere. It becomes a question of whether the Saints can get those last disposals in the right areas. They were having a problem with those final connections before set shots or shots in general against Fremantle in the second half. Part of that is pacing, I think because when they tried to match Fremantle's speed, it didn't go well. So they're going to need to play a bit more slowly than I think they'd like to otherwise. I think just based on records, it's clear the Bulldogs need this game more. If we're looking at, you know, the quest to go to 13 and 9, I think it's much more doable for the Saints from 9 and 8 than it is for the Bulldogs from 8 and 9, looking at their remaining schedules. Not that either have an easy schedule. I think the Saints are in deep shit if they lose this game. But I think the Bulldogs are almost completely dead if they lose this one. And you know my belief with the Bulldogs has been they step up and win when they absolutely have to. So the emotional side of it tells me they're going to win this game. The analytical side tells me it's going to be the Saints. Make of that what you will. And if they don't win, then are you just going to say this season didn't matter to them? I might. Fucking hell, Ethan. A quintet of games on Saturday in the 2-1-2 arrangement. The first two beginning 11.45 p.m. Eastern, 8.45 p.m. Pacific on Friday night for American viewers. And one of those is Adelaide and Collingwood at the Adelaide Oval. A rematch from round two when the Pies easily defeated the Crows at the G by 42 points. So it'll be 1.15 bounce local time in Adelaide, 1.45 p.m. bounce for the Eastern States. And Americans can watch this one on Fox 2. The Pies have actually not lost to the Crows since round 17 of 2016. They drew in 2017, and the Pies have won their five meetings since. The four of which before this year were at the Adelaide Oval. They hadn't played at the G in five years before round two this year. Scheduling is weird. 
I just want to take a moment and talk about last year's meeting again, even though they've already met once this year. It was at a time when Victoria had entered one of their lockdowns. I think that was the 85th of their 213 snap lockdowns. But Collingwood had plans to fly in and fly out on the day of the game. And we got an incredible quote from South Australia's chief public health officer, Professor Nicola Spurrier. She was talking about efforts to reduce contact opportunities between fans and players and also between fans and the ball. And she says, because sometimes the ball, not that I've been to many football games, but I have noticed occasionally it does get kicked into the crowd. We are working through the details of what that will mean. If you are at Adelaide Oval and the ball comes to you, my advice to you is to duck and just do not touch that ball. I could probably record like a five-hour podcast about how out of touch these health officers are, whether it's in Australia, the United States, any other country. Am I so out of touch? No, it's the citizens who are wrong. But at least this was a funny out-of-touch moment, although it was a pretty humbling reminder. It's like, these are the people who are making your decisions. Also, Collingwood won that game by five, and it was really fun. This year, the Pies are 11-5. and five. They are in sixth after getting over North Melbourne late, beating them by seven. They did not play well for three quarters. They turned it on when it mattered. The Crows got outclassed by the Hawks last round. They are 5-11 and 11 and in 15th. However, the Crows will be gaining a couple decent pieces in Mitch Hinge and Shane McAdam, who I'd say has been more than decent as of late. Hinge will be back from COVID protocols, McAdam from his ankle injury. The other in for the Crows is Lachlan Murphy. There was initially some speculation that Luke Pedler might make a return after rehabbing from his adductor strain, but he'll be playing in the reserves this week. Joshua Shelley will be out for at least another week, though. Crows are playing it safe with his hip. That's been bothering him for a while. For the Pies, Jordan Degoe will miss his second straight game. He got hurt in training a day before the game against North Melbourne. Brody Grundy is probably two weeks away from returning from his PCL injury, although for all the PCL injuries to Ruckman, they seem to have done a better job replacing him in the hitouts department than most, whereas other teams have found ways to handle clearances, even if hitouts haven't been so good. Collie would have had the clearance presence all along, though, led by Jack Crisp. But they've also actually been able to get the hitouts with Cameron Cox and others stepping up there. It's honestly amazing that Darcy Moore is already back in after only one week on the sidelines. His knee injury looked terrible in the moment. Somehow he avoided structural damage, just hyperextension, and he's already raring to go, it seems. However, on the smaller side of defense... Isaac Quainer is in COVID protocols, and that's a pretty substantial loss. Trent Bianca recalled from the VFL to take Quainer's place. Additionally, we knew that Taylor Adams was concussed last week. Ash Johnson will come into the midfield and will make his debut against his brother Shane McAdam. The real shock, though, with this game's selection is that Ollie Henry was omitted? Did not see that coming at all. He's had a hard time stringing good full games together, but he's been such an important player in a couple fourth quarters that I really thought he would stay in the 22 all along. He is listed as an emergency, so maybe he's the medical sub for the exact reason I said he should stay. Collingwood are favored by 9.5. It was actually Collingwood by 11 a few days ago, back before the list news. So maybe that's the impact of Isaac Quainer being out. I thought Darcy Moore would make up for that. One way or the other, that's where the line is, and it seems low to me. 
seems low. Yes, the Crows have generally played better at home, and obviously the Pies aren't coming off a great performance last week, but I don't think they put up two straight crappy outings. I think they look a lot better in this game. And while I think their streak could certainly come to an end in the coming weeks, I don't see them playing two straight games of such poor quality where they have to pull it out at the end. The Pies are also a team that are very quick to punish mistakes in terms of movement. We've seen really ever since the Queen's birthday game in particular just how strong they can be on the counterattack. And with the nonsensical ball movement that the Crows have been wont to have this season, I could definitely see things turning sour very quickly for the home side. I expect the Pies to win by four-plus goals. I hope this game stays competitive, because I hope just about every game stays competitive. But if it doesn't, guess what? There's another one going on at the exact same time. And it should actually have a good crowd, because it's out at Monica Oval. Greater Western Sydney Giants, Brisbane Lions. Again, same time, 1.45 p.m. local in the Eastern States on the 16th, 11.45 p.m. Eastern, 8.45 p.m. Pacific, Friday the 15th in the U.S., Fox Soccer Plus. Giants under this game is one of three teams with a 5-11 record. They are in 13th. Lions are one of three teams with an 11-5 record. They enter in 4th. Strangely enough, that means both games in this time slot have a 5-11 home team and an 11-5 away team. I should ask Swamp on Twitter about how often that's happened, where two home teams and two away teams both have the same record. I mean, if we're looking outside of the first couple rounds... I would say, like, past the halfway point. Speaking of the halfway point, these teams met back in round 11, a game the Lions won by 14 after they overcame a really bad first quarter. That was the second game coached by Mark McVeigh, and it gave us some optimism to think, all right, even against better teams, the Giants are going to play a fun, competitive style. Though they certainly weren't fun or competitive last week. Fell flat on their faces against Port Adelaide. They kicked 3-11-29. And it's amazing that they even got 14 scoring shots off because they pretty much never got into their offensive half. This was one of the more lopsided games this year. We've seen others that have been more lopsided scoring-wise, but from a possession and territory standpoint, this one was pretty outlandish. Meanwhile, the Lions, dealing with all sorts of COVID outs, had to make nine changes last week and fell to Essendon by 10 points. Thankfully, the Lions' COVID situation has significantly calmed down. Kalamachi, Harris Andrews, Noah Answorth, Kadeem Coleman, and Dan McStay will all return. So clearly, masks and smaller training groups did the job. Some people may be surprised at how much that worked and how teams were so quick to adopt these practices, but in light of what happened to the Eagles in the early rounds, particularly round two, makes complete sense why they did. However, Oscar McInerney is in protocols. That was known a couple days after the last game. Non-COVID protocol news for the Lions. Welcome back, Darcy Gardner. He'll return to the AFL for the first time since suffering a rib and lungs injury in round 13 against St. Kilda. He needed fluid removed from his lungs, and his injury was the most substantial suffered by any Lion thus far this season. Remember, Eric Hipwood tore his ACL last year. Kind of amazing. This is a team that I commented before had been really fortunate from a health standpoint. They usually had one of the shortest injury reports, and I thought at some point they were going to get hit with some significant injuries, and most of their injuries have not been super long-term or anything. It's just... They've all hit it once. For the Giants, it was really unfortunate that Phil Davis went down once again with all the hamstring issues he's had. Even more unfortunate now that we know that he ruptured the tendon in his 
other hamstring. And having suffered an injury to both of them now, I'm really wondering if we may have seen the last of them. Additionally, Adam, not to be confused with the former second baseman Kennedy, is concussed, and Lockie Whitfield is injured. Jake Riccardi will be in, and Connor Einan returns for protocols. However, the real big shock for me, and likely for you, Ethan, as well, because I know how much you enjoy watching him, is that Callum M. Brown, the young Irishman who burst onto the scene once again with a four-goal performance a couple rounds ago, has been omitted. Just a couple weird omissions this round to me. Harry Perryman could be returning soon from his cracked ribs, but that won't be this week. Thinking back to Davis, though, with how thin their defense was stretched earlier this year was really apparent that he was out. Harry Helmberg being moved back there has helped the coverage there somewhat, but he's the type of guy that's really hard to replace in terms of skill and leadership. I look at Himmelberg more as someone who's able to move the ball out of the back rather than do the tagging and marking. Davis is that lockdown fullback that you need at this level, and I don't see anyone on this current list who's able to take that role in his place. Sam Taylor and Isaac Cumming tried their damnedest, couldn't do it. Is there a world in which the Giants had their first win in the last five home and away meetings against the Lions and their first win against them overall since the 2019 semifinal? Yes, there is. But I feel like it'll be more the Lions undoing if they're able to win it than it'll be the Giants themselves getting the job done. Brisbane ought to have the agency in this one. They're favored by eight and a half. Couldn't really read into the line on this game before that because of how everything was so up in the air slash influx for them. But we know the lists now. No late changes expected, obviously. And minus eight and a half. I definitely would go a bit higher on this one if the COVID situation remains okay. And then there was one, the standalone game on Saturday. If you were to make this round schedule from scratch, I see three great options for this standalone game, and none of them would be what the AFL ended up choosing because it's North Enrichment from Marvel. Welcome to the Lee Adams era, people. Enjoy it while it lasts because it's probably just going to be six games. Seems like Marvel Stadium tends to have games earlier in the day on Saturday. I don't know if that's a factor with this. Either way, this is really bad scheduling, but I hope that either this ends up being a compelling game or it's a great time to catch up on other stuff and maybe sleep a little bit because what I really don't want is for this to be a game that's kind of stuck in purgatory where it's like, it's not close, but it's also not a blowout. So you kind of have to keep watching even though you're not entertained. Or maybe it'll just be the second week in a row where one of us falls asleep and we miss an after the siren goal. I think we've gotten that out of the way for the year. If it happened again, that would be pretty wild. This one gets underway 11.35 p.m. Pacific time on Friday night. So if you're on the East Coast of the United States, 2.35 a.m. And in Melbourne, 4.35 p.m. This will be another Fox Soccer Plus game. North enter at 1-15. They're in 18th. They've dropped 14 games in a row, while the Tigers sit at 9-7, holding on to that last spot in the eight over the Saints on percentage. Hey, at least North snapped their losing by 47 points streak, and they didn't lose by that much last time they played either. They played at an empty Melbourne Cricket Ground in round 21 last year, and Richmond won by 33 points. There's one in for North Melbourne, and it's the expected one. After, for some reason, playing in the VFL last week, Jason Horn Francis returns to the main side. 
One thing I want to note about him, I thought it was really cool that at training there were a couple of fans holding up a sign, supporting him, and saying, you know, you're a shin boner forever or something to that extent. I thought that was really cool considering he hasn't been there for long and the relationship clearly hasn't been great. Additionally, Kane Turner is out of concussion protocols, but he wasn't named to the main 22. He's an emergency, though, so maybe we'll see him as a sub. Looks like Aaron Hall is still a week out, and now it looks like Jared Pollock is done for the year after only appearing in a couple games. Another notable part of this selection is that clearly Jaden Stevenson is okay despite being subbed out last week with a hip injury. His relationship with the club is clearly not the greatest, but he'll be playing this week. Remember, this is a player that has no shortage of talent. When he left Collingwood a couple years ago, we thought they were really going to miss him. And sure enough, they struggled in the immediate aftermath without him. I don't know how much of it is an attitude thing, how much of it's that it's hard to get motivated sometimes when you're not on a successful team. There could be a lot of things at play here, but he keeps getting chances because the ceiling is so damn high. I wonder if he's like Matt Holiday and just doesn't want to play in a smaller market team. You know, Matt Holiday's son is going to be a likely first-round draft pick. That could make you feel old. Also, I've never wanted a kid who hasn't even been drafted yet to fail more just by who his dad is. Actually, I really hope he hates his dad. Also, North aren't necessarily, you know, a small market. They actually signed up a record membership base this year. Of course, they're not in great standing in terms of the numbers compared to the other Victorian teams, but... It's not like they're tiny. A bit facetious for me on that one. A lot of news in terms of injuries, ins and outs for the Tigers. Perhaps most importantly, Toby Nankervis will play. There were concerns about him suffering a PCL injury that might have sidelined him because every Ruckman seems like they're due for one this year. But he is in, and that is massive because Tom Lynch is out with a hamstring injury that he suffered early last week. Yvonne Soldo broke his finger. Noah Balta is another huge in. It was expected that he'd be in, though, which is why I said Nankervis was bigger news. Balta's clearly going to be Ruck 2 as he returns from his own hamstring injury. Otherwise, you'll probably see him in full forward, though these are the Tigers. Players go all over the ground for him. Nick Vlostone is back from his suspension. You can only imagine how well he might have matched up with Bobby Urchol last week. Hindsight's 2020, I guess. Shouldn't have punched Connor West. Trent Cotchin returns from a broken collarbone. Josh Gibkiss returns from illness. Morris Rioli Jr. is out. Didn't expect his omission, but it means welcome to the starting 18, Noah Cumberland. He had his first AFL action last week after being subbed on early when Lynch went down, scored two quick goals, and this week he'll be lined up at full forward to start things with Noah Balta and Jack Revolt. Additionally, midfielder Tyler Sonsi is making his debut. Congratulations to him. Jack Ross and Dustin Martin will need another week, at least, if not more with their knee and hamstring injuries, respectively. So, a whole lot of changes for Richmond, some of which were expected, some of which weren't, after their, after the siren loss, and the game is firmly in their hands. As much as North were able to impress people last week, this is still North, and just like how you expect some teams to not play two poor games in a row, like their opponents last week in Collingwood, I just can't expect North to put two good games together. I don't think what North does is going to matter at all, because I think the Tigers are going to come out pissed after the way they pissed away last week's game. And the way they've pissed away a lot of games this year. Again, they've led all but two of their games this year at three-quarter time, and they've lost five of those times. I think they're going to come out angry. 
maybe because North will have some newfound energy under a new coach. Maybe it doesn't turn into, you know, three goals in the first 10 minutes for the Tigers, but this could be a game where North just happened to be the ones standing in the way and the unfortunate victims. Richmond favored by 44 and a half. It's hard to nail down a line for an expected blowout, so I think we'll just leave it there. You've heard us do this a bunch of times, so I'm going to mix it up by doing it really fast. Follow us on Twitter at Americans Footy. Follow me on Twitter at Castle Media. Follow me at BenjaminHK01. Follow Grind Harambe the Footy Cat at Cat Named Grind on Instagram. He needs more followers. On to a clusterfuck of a double evening fixture, which I will unfortunately not be able to take in live for the most part because my dad and I will be driving up to Oregon late Friday slash early Saturday. We're going to be spending the week up in Eugene for the World Athletics Championships. So we will be doing a couple more interstate episodes. I think this will be the first time you're the one recording from out of state, though. I don't understand why you would ever schedule two top eight games like this late in the season. They had to have seen this coming. We thought it was terrible as soon as it was announced, and now we have even more reason to be mad about it because the Deconing Derby should have its own time slot, and so should Frio and Sydney. Or at least one of them should be up against a crap game instead of having two of the three best games of this round right up against each other. Let's talk about that Deconan Derby first. Carlton and Geelong at the G. This will start five minutes before the other, so it's a 7.25 p.m. local start in Melbourne. That's 5.25 a.m. Eastern, 2.25 a.m. Pacific for American viewers on Saturday the 16th. And you can tune into Fox Sports 2 for this one. It's amazing that just one win separates first and sixth, looking at the ladder and where these teams fall. Carlton are in fifth at 11-5. and five. They're well behind Brisbane in percentage, but well ahead of Collingwood. The Cats are 3.3% ahead of the Demons, and that's why, after beating him on Thursday night, they jumped to the top of the ladder for the first time this year. When these teams met last year, it was also at the MCG. It was in round 17. It was a game Geelong won by 26, as Carlton kicked 5-14. I just want to say before we go any further, I've already accepted that the Cats are due for a loss whether it be this game or Port Adelaide, I think it's going to be this one. And this is going to sound weird, but I'd be more concerned about their flag chances if they keep winning right now, because if they really prolong this winning streak, because if this streak gets to like nine games or beyond, I'm going to be convinced they've peaked too early. So they probably need to lose a game, whether it's this one or at the Adelaide Oval. I hope it's not this one because I find it kind of easy to pull against Carlton. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's the boring uniforms or the boring club song, or I don't know, because it's not like any of their players really have done anything objectionable. There's just something about them. They give off Toronto Maple Leafs vibes. Although unlike the Maple Leafs, they've actually won a championship in the last 50 years. Yeah, they've won half of their 16 flags since the Leafs last won the Stanley Cup, which was in 1967. And let's note, for a lot of that window, the NHL had fewer teams in the AFL. That's changed now, but I will never pass up an opportunity to take a shot at the Maple Leafs or really any of the Canadian teams. I just want to mention, hockey is supposed to be Canada's game. The Stanley Cup is supposed to be Canada's trophy. The N in NHL was actually for Canada initially. Of course, now there are 25 American teams in a 32-team league. The Stanley Cup hasn't been won by a Canadian team since 1993. Can you imagine, like, 
a drought of that scale for Victorian teams in the AFL. Is Logos just between Essendon in 2000 and Geelong in 2007? And I can only imagine how terrible that must have felt. Or great for the other states. As for this game, which is between two Victorian teams, though, the only change to the Blues 22 this week is that Liam Stalker returns in favor of Josh Honey. There was a good chance we thought that a lot more changes could be made, but the Blues are holding Pat after riding the ship against West Coast. In the first and fourth quarters, at least. All three of Ed Kernow, Sam Durden, and Lockie Fogarty all played VFL last week. Fogarty racked up 30-plus disposals there. However, they will all remain at the reserves level. Jack Martin and Matthew Owies as well. They'll be joined there by Mitch McGovern and Mark Pittnett, who are finally starting there in-game rehabbing. McGovern went down in round two, Pittnett in round six. On the Geelong side, Tom Stewart will be in the third week of his four-week suspension. The expectation was that Brandon Parfit would return for this game after recovering from his broken hand. However, he is in COVID protocol, so his return is delayed for at least a week. The only change for the Cats is Jake Kolajashny, out of concussion protocols, returning and taking Jed Buse's spot. Let's also note that we're getting to the point where the Cats may have more than 22 viable players going for those spots because John Segler is now another ruck option after dominating in the VFL. He's had a very long road to recovery. In that VFL game against Casey, Francis Evans and Quinton Arkle also played quite well. I just, I don't see a spot for Narkle beyond injury sub. They also could look to reinsert Jake Kolajashny as he should be out of concussion protocols in time for this game. But honestly, he might be one of the weakest links defensively right now. So really, they have reason to play it safe with him. I just think of all the games to miss Tom Stewart for, this is the most important one. Because as much as Sam DeConan can do, someone else is going to have to step up because the Blues have so many forward options. And unless Jack Henry and Tom Atkins both have monster games, it's going to be really hard to contain that Carlton forward group. It's going to be hard enough for them to contain the two key guys in Harry Mackay and Charlie Kernow. Whichever one Santa Koning isn't matched up on, it should have at least three goals. Honestly, I don't have all that much more to say on this one. I don't see the way this game goes about being much of a shock. Both teams' styles are very much known, and there are hardly any changes, just one for each team. So there's the game right there. Two top sides, two topical sides. Look forward to watching this one. I think this is one of those games where we'll have a lot more to talk about after than we do before. The one thing I'm hoping for that I think could put the Cats over the edge in this game, remember that Tom Hawkins and Jeremy Cameron combined for just one goal last week, and Cameron combined with Tyson Stengel for three misses that cost them 15 points. If things even out on that front, they may be able to do enough to outscore the Blues. Geelong favored by seven and a half. I wouldn't touch this one. It's going to be hard enough for people to just pick along with the tips for the rest of the round. I'm just going to enjoy this one as best I can, even though my attention will largely be elsewhere as it's happening. Again, I've accepted that the Cats are going to lose this game. I hope to be surprised. I would take Carlton not just to cover, but to win outright. Again, Geelong is due for a loss. And I'm not worried about that long term, as long as they hopefully knock on wood. 
come out of this game pretty healthy and don't get completely exposed and just have some small things to work on, it could be one of those things where a loss actually proves to be beneficial. Five minutes after that game gets underway, there will be a ridiculous matchup across the country as well. One of the best matchups of two non-Victorian teams. Fremantle hosting Sydney at Optus Stadium. We've gone on so much about the Dockers this year. The Swans are coming off a great performance as well. This one will get underway at 5.30 local time in Perth on Saturday. That means 7.30 in the eastern states, 2.30 a.m. on the west coast of the U.S., 5.30 a.m. on the east coast. Again, this is a time slot that you do not want to miss. Schedule your sleeping or whatever nighttime stuff, you know, clubs and, well, I'm going to assume there aren't that many people that listen to us that go to clubs. Maybe I'm just projecting myself onto the audience here, but whatever it is you find yourself doing at that time, typically, don't do that thing unless that thing is watching Saturday Night Footy. Or working, though I hope you're not scheduled for the night shift because you do not want to miss these. No, quit your job. If you're supposed to work during this, quit your job. It's unfortunate that this will only be on Fox Soccer Plus. There were a couple times last year and maybe even once this year that that two games were on Fox Sports 1 and Fox Sports 2 in the U.S. at the same time. Sad that won't be happening here. Fremantle enter at 12-4. and They are in third. They're the lowest of the three 12-win teams on percentage and by a pretty substantial margin, close to 10%. The Swans are the lone 10-win team in the league right now at 10 and 6 in 7th place. Their percentage is quite good, though. 120.5. That's a better percentage than both Carlton and Collingwood. These teams met in round 10 last year, also at Optus Stadium, a game the Dockers won by 2, despite allowing 6 goals to Buddy Franklin. Nat Fife kicked would prove to be the final goal of the game with about 4.5 minutes left. The Dockers played a lot of wild and fun, close home games last year. And this was right up there in that upper tier of crazy games. Even if maybe with the after the siren goals last year, this one could kind of slip through the cracks. I'm sure that fans of both the Dockers and Swans remember it well. And I was actually really glad to have a refresher on this game because I didn't remember it. Fremantle have won three straight meetings against Sydney. The 2020 game was completely forgettable for the Swans because they kicked just 2-7. In round 18, 2019, though, there was another ridiculous back-and-forth game. Michael Walters scored what was ultimately the winning goal very early on in the fourth quarter. The Swans scored the last two goals, but couldn't get it done at the very end, and Frio held on by a single point. So, hope for more craziness in this one. Though I don't hope for a draw, those suck. Because you don't hear anybody singing at the end. For Fremantle, Alex Pierce was a late out last week with a calf injury, and I'm talking a warm-ups out. That's the only reason Bailey Banfield was in the starting 22. Pierce remains out this round. However, the Dockers will be regaining Blake Akers and Heath Chapman from hamstring injuries, and Chapman will clearly have a tough task ahead of him, and I expect that he'll be one of the guys to help fill in for Pierce. But hey, the Dockers did a good enough job plugging the gap that Pierce left last week, so I only expect them to look better with another one of their better defenders back in. Some other injury returns may occur soon for Fremantle, most importantly for our discussion because we both enjoy watching him, you in particular, Ethan, Nathan O'Driscoll, who got off to a hell of a start this year. Absolute monster on the wing, though. As if Rio need another big strength like that. He has the chance to make people forget that Ed Langdon left them. 
The Swans have made a ruck swap because A, Peter Laddams broke his thumb and he's out three weeks following the surgery on it, and B, Tom Hickey has returned from illness, and he'll clearly be pairing with Sam Reed in the ruck because Reed was awesome against Tim English last week, outdid him, and you gotta have two rucks to match up against how physical Sean Darcy is, and also the finesse that Rory Lobb has in there. He's a damn good second ruck who's also one of the best goal kickers on the team. Cutting off Lobb's opportunities, whether in ruck contests or outside them, will be crucial if the Swans are to somewhat shock the Dockers on their home turf. If there's any team whose play style may be able to neutralize the impact of the McCartan brothers, it could definitely be Fremantle with how ground-based they can be. That said, I also think Sydney are very well equipped to handle Fremantle's forward pressure. Nick Blakey moving the ball out of the back 50 is something every team wishes they could have and will be especially valuable in this particular matchup. And his opposite number could be Jordan Clark. Really liked some of the slingshotting he did last round, and I mentioned their similarities in that regard in our previous episode, though Blakey has much more of an ability to finish what he started. Some of that could be because his teammates are more looking for marks, whereas Clark is able to handball it to guys who are also kind of running downhill. So team styles could have something to do with that. But if you ask me which one was more likely to score a goal between Blakey and Clark, I would definitely say Blakey, regardless of team structure, surrounding talent. Blakey just has more actual goal-kicking ability. Fremantle are favored by nine and a half, and I might put it a little higher. I think it's going to be a bit of a challenge for the Swans to move away from being marked first in the forward 50. They have a whole bunch of targets, and a lot of them can run well, especially Chad Warner. I just think Fremantle can match up against them all pretty well. I actually would probably put this line a couple points lower. So maybe the odds makers know exactly what they're doing by putting it straight in the middle of what we think. You know, going by this massive sample size, the public clearly has split opinions on this line. So that means they're doing things right. Three games on Sunday with the typical overlaps. The first one, it's the Sam Mitchell Cup. Hawthorne will host the West Coast Eagles at the G. It'll be the Eagles' second trip to the G in three weeks after having not played there at all in the first 15 rounds of the season. This one gets underway for those of us on the West Coast of the United States Saturday night at 8.10. It'll be 11.10 p.m. if you're on the East Coast. In Melbourne, it'll be 1.10 p.m. And if you're in Western Australia, it'll be one of the earliest games you get as it starts at 11.10 in the morning. It'll be another Fox Soccer Plus game. First time in three rounds that the Eagles will not be able to be seen on more standard U.S. TV. Hawthorne enter at 5-11 and 14th after a convincing win over the Adelaide Crows at Marvel Stadium in a rare home game there for them. Eagles, 2-14, they're in 17th for all the good that they have done coming out of the bye. You didn't really see much of that. These teams played last year round 8 at the G, and the Eagles won that game by 38 points. When they played in the last round in 2019, Sam Mitchell's first year, on Hawthorne's staff after helping the Eagles win the flag the year prior. Hawthorne's win knocked the Eagles from fourth to fifth, though West Coast still managed to reach the semifinals. 
Neither of these teams should be in for too many injury-related changes, though we do have injury news, certainly, for Hawthorne. Sam Frost suffered a setback with his knee injury and could be done for the year. Lachlan Bramble and James Warple are, in fact, done for the year, though neither of those are really surprises. It's just confirmation. If Chad Wingard gets back in, it won't be for at least a few more weeks, though they are going to get Will Day back from his suspension. We thought that maybe Jack Gunstead would return this round after mourning the loss of his father. However, he remains out, and of course, that's completely understandable. One notable name on the extended bench for Hawthorne, Jai Sarong, brother of Fremantle's Caleb, who has been a highlight reel of all sorts the past couple seasons. If Jai gets in, it would be his debut. A couple similar situations in the ins and outs to Hawthorne, starting with bereavement. We know that Willie Rioli Jr., is in the Northern Territory for his father's funeral. Again, we wish him all the best. Of course, he won't be playing this round. Hopefully, the club can get around him and help him through this difficult time once he does return. The bigger out this week for the Eagles, though, is that Nick Natanui is out. His injury just described as soreness. Was he rushed back a bit, perhaps? I don't know. Did Tom DeConing take a lot out of him in his matchup with him? I don't know. I'm going to say probably. In terms of ins for the Eagles, though, Jamie Cripps is back from COVID protocols. Unfortunate that he couldn't play against his cousin, Patrick, last week. And I mentioned that there were a couple similarities between Hawthorne and West Coast in and outs. Here's the other. Ajay is going to be in, potentially for Hawthorne, definitely for the Eagles, because Jai Cully, number one pick in the midseason draft, will be debuting in the midfield. I love seeing these guys who didn't get the chance in November, were passed over then, proving themselves this season and then getting the opportunity right away. Hopefully, Cully gives us something to cheer about. Considering that the Hawks are coming off a pretty good performance last week and that the Eagles had been playing well their past couple games, or at least had been playing better, this should be one of the more compelling games between two of the bottom five teams this late in the season, teams that are a combined 7-25. and 25. Hawthorne favored by 28 and a half. I would probably have this line closer to 20. I'd actually go on the higher end because Sam Mitchell knows the Eagles system so well, having played and having played and coached, having played and coached under Adam Simpson. And I, just, and I think that Hawthorne should be able to continue their good work from last week. We saw really good things out of Ned Reeves in more of a tall half-forward job with with Ben Big Boy McAvoy returning to ruck duty, and hopefully Reeves will continue progressing on that front. Hawthorne are favored by 33 and a half. Between the form these teams have coming into this game, their immediate form in particular, it makes sense. Also, the impact of that Nui's out is clear in that Hawthorne's rucks won't have to labor nearly as much. Additionally, an underrated part of all this, Sam Mitchell knows Adam Simpson's system really well. He played in it in 2017, he coached in it in 2018, and really, there haven't been that many changes to it since. I'll be paying attention to the Eagles game, obviously, which means, Ethan, you can enjoy one of the best games of the year, Melbourne's date in the Red Center. For the first time since 2020, footy is back in Alice Springs. The Demons are hosting Port Adelaide at TIO Traeger Park. It's actually a shorter trip distance-wise for the power, but... This is Melbourne's second home. I wish they played there more than once a year because it's just such a cool experience. I was explaining it to an American friend tonight, basically saying it would be like if a team from Arizona or Texas went out and played a game in rural New Mexico. By distance, it would be more like playing in the Badlands. 
This is the middle Sunday game. It'll be a seven broadcast and it'll be available in the U.S. on Fox Sports 2. Saturday night at 10.20 p.m. on the West Coast. 1.20 a.m. Sunday morning on the East Coast. If you're watching in the Eastern States, it'll be at 3.20 p.m. If you're either in the Northern Territory or in South Australia, it'll get underway at 2.50 in the afternoon. And it looks like the weather should actually be really nice for this one. Should be in the low 70s Fahrenheit, so the low 20s Celsius. It'll be very dry, but more than palatable in terms of temperature. I will note that drier conditions usually mean that it doesn't feel as warm as the listed temperature, so it could feel more like it's in the 60s, but the sort of game where you're probably not going to need more than a light jacket. Hopefully, they'll absolutely pack the place. Even if it was a completely irrelevant game to the season as a whole, I would still be so excited for this just because I love the concept of country footy and this is country footy at its finest. It's also a pretty important game. The D's currently sit in second at 12 and 4, though in theory they could be back in first by the time this gets underway, depending on results of other games. Port Adelaide, as we've mentioned, need to win four of their last five. They are at 8-8. Eight and eight. They are in 12th. These teams have already played once this year, and it was ugly. In fact, it was so bad at the time we said that the people of Alice Springs deserve a better matchup than the one they're getting. The Demons won that meeting 68-36. to 36. Port Adelaide kicking five behinds and no goals in the first half. Their lowest scoring half since moving into the AFL. Because we only have the extended benches for this game, we don't have a final 22 yet. Nothing really to report for Port Adelaide, but a bunch of stuff from Melbourne. Three changes already known there. The biggest of those three, of course, is that Clayton Oliver is out after having broken his thumb last week, snapping a 127-game Ironman streak. Luke Dunstan has been named in the extended bench in Oliver's place. Additionally, Adam Tomlinson is in for Harrison Petty, who is in COVID protocols. And the last real surprise omission for me in this one is Jake Bowie. When he entered the lineup in round 20 last year, the Demons could do nothing but win. You can throw in a DJ Khaled reverence there if you like. He's definitely been quieter these past few rounds. He hasn't been anyone that's jumped out to me. Maybe this is just good for him to get the rest. Maybe step down a level, see what else he can do in other areas of the field. He's played a whole bunch in the back half. Maybe they'll be exploring some of his other options as well because he's been an accurate kick. I just think he needs to be a smarter player at times. He needs to have better decision-making in terms of disposals. I don't know how much the location plays into things. What I can tell you is the forecast is not calling for high wind, which is important because when you're at a smaller venue, there's much less out there to interfere with the wind, and it can play a much bigger factor. But with the wind forecasted to be in the five mile per hour range, it shouldn't be anywhere near as important. We saw the havoc that higher winds can wreak in sm at smaller venues this year when the Dogs and the Crows played out in the Central Highlands. Glad that is unlikely to be the case here. This is going to be another game where, in terms of port, I'm going to be really looking at what Charlie Dixon ends up doing. He's spent probably about two-thirds of his time, at least, in the rush as of late. And you'll have the tallest of tasks against Max Gone and Luke Jackson there. Was that a deliberate pun? No, it actually wasn't. Wow. I want to see what the likes of Kane Farrell and Willem Drew can do, because if Porter are going to win this game, they're going to need guys like that to really step it up. 
you're not just going to beat Melbourne on the backs of your star players. It needs to be a deep performance. And we saw that from Geelong last week. It's pretty clear that Willem Drew should be tagging Christian Petraka. Farrell and Houston can be really important figures coming from halfback and through coming from halfback and through the middle. One of the things that could make this game really interesting is the presence of Sam Powell Pepper. I think he's kind of a complete foil to Melbourne's system because whereas the Ds are very regimented, very organized, Powell Pepper kind of flies around everywhere. The only guy who I think would be a better representation of like a polar opposite to their system would be Mitch Robinson. Melbourne favored by 10 and a half, despite both, despite how they played last week. It was a clunker for them then, but I expect them to rebound there as professional a side as they come. And they made it clear against Brisbane that they can easily survive when their structure is disrupted, which was a question we had of them in the bye weeks. For Melbourne, I'm looking toward the small forwards in terms of what can they manage to do cutting through a defensive unit that is very strong in terms of intercept marking. As of late, Alir Alir, Darcy Byrne-Jones, Tom Jones has been doing really well against mid-height and taller forwards in direct on-ball work. And if there are players that can throw a wrench into things for Port defensively, I think it'll be the likes of Kazi Pickett and Toby Bedford. Ready to move on? Do you agree with that? It kind of went in one ear and out the other. But the small forwards for, for Melbourne have a chance to throw a wrench into Port's defensive, uh, defensive structure. Oh, that makes sense. When it looked like the Demons were about to take total control of their game last week, it was because Pickett had gotten going. And even though he had had a mostly crappy game, when he hit one, the confidence boost and everything that followed from that was palpable. His uncle Byron played for both teams involved in this matchup, so I imagine this is a pretty significant game for him. Our final game of the round is going to get overshadowed a bit by Alice Springs, but could end up being of pretty great significance. It looked for a while like this game would have been totally irrelevant because neither team was going to have any shot at the finals, but then the Gold Coast Suns pulled off the comeback of the year. So they're still alive. They are going to need to pick up their first win in Victoria this season as they take on Essendon at Marvel Stadium. And Essendon have rattled off two consecutive wins against teams currently in the eight in Sydney and Brisbane. Amazing what having Kyle Langford back can do. The Bombers and Suns will bounce at 4.40 p.m. local time at the Docklands. So that's 2.40 a.m. Eastern Sunday the 17th, 11.40 p.m. Pacific Saturday the 16th for us American viewers. The only way to legally watch this one live in the U.S. is with Watch AFL because it'll be shown on delay on Fox Soccer Plus beginning at 8 a.m. Eastern, 5 a.m. Pacific Sunday the 17th. Can I do the records and stuff? Sure. Essendon enter at 5 and 11. They're at 16th. The Gold Coast Suns are 8-8. Eight and eight. They are in 11th. They are still very much in things. A tough task ahead of them, potentially needing to win 5 of 6. But if they can win this one, they'll at least have taken the first step. When these teams met in round 22 last year was part of a pair of very consequential games that ended up helping the Bombers move into the 8 for good. They easily took care of the Suns winning by 68 at Cardinia Park of all places, in a game with no people in the crowd that was moved from Metricon Stadium because COVID restrictions, I forget how sudden it was. It was all a clusterfuck late in the home and away last year. Between that and Fremantle beating West Coast in the Western Derby, 
hasn't ended up finding themselves in the finals. The Bombers have won five of the last six meetings, with their only non-win being a draw in 2020. The Bombers will still be without Darcy Parrish and spark plug Archie Perkins. Both have soft tissue calf injuries. It looks like Perkins is just a week away, though. Massimo D'Ambrosio will be back in. He corked his quad last week. Hopefully, his nanos are all able to see this game as well. Wow. The Suns have had a clusterfuck of injuries lately, but most of them are long-term, with a number of them being longer-term. In terms of the short-term stuff, Malcolm Rosas Jr. is out one to two weeks with a hamstring injury, and Alex Davies needs one more week rehabbing his knee. However, Jai Farrer, Oleg Markov, and Isaac Rankin will all be exiting COVID protocols. But, and I'm shocked looking back that even with the outset Richmond had last week, that the Suns were able to overcome their own protocol outs and managed to get that after the siren win. Also, Mason Redmond should be out of protocols in time for Essendon. He entered those later in the week, but enough time should elapse for him to be able to return to action. Weirdly, a bit of a list crunch in defense for the Bombers. Hard to think that would have been the case with how they were earlier in the season, but with Redmond being such a good force in terms of moving the ball out, with Nick Hine having done admirably in that role last week, Jane Laverde and Brandon Zirk Thatcher especially holding things down in the very back with intercepts. Jake, Jake Kelly having done well on Charlie Cameron. There are way more good things going for the Bombers in terms of, in terms of their back lines than I would have expected at any time this season. Meanwhile, the Suns had their first poor defensive game in quite a while last week. Suns favored by only one and a half. I know they've had some big outs and the Bombers are coming off back-to-back wins over final teams, but I would think the Suns need to be favored by at least a goal, probably more than that. I honestly like Essendon a lot going into this one. I can't see them getting blown off the oval, and I really think they can win and effectively end the Suns season with it, based on the fact that the Suns would have to pick up a win either in the Q clash or against Geelong to still get to 13 if they lose in this one. Actually, no, wait, duh. Considering they have to win out and they still have to face Brisbane again and Geelong, and it's for completely defensive reasons. The Suns had a defensive letdown last game for the first time in a while. It was way too easy for Richmond to move on them, and had the Tigers not missed some really easy shots, there would have been no comeback. The margin would have been too big to overcome. Meanwhile, the Bombers all of a sudden have a bit of a list crunch out there. It's the defensive play that makes me like Essendon a lot for this one. I don't see them getting completely blown off the oval, and I can really see them getting over the line and effectively ending the Suns' season. Brandon Zirk Thatcher went from being a fringe guy to a really core defensive role in last week's win over the Lions. I know normally you don't come out of a game saying we played solid defense when you gave up 90, but this is against the Lions and at the Gabba, so exceptions can be made, especially when you win. This is the one game of the round where I'm really hoping for it to stay close that I can see. I feel like I'm hoping the most in this out of the games of this round for this game to be close out of any of them. I just think that all the different storylines across the Oval coming together can make this a really rewarding watch if it does stay close, even with both these teams in the bottom half of the ladder. I just don't think the Bombers are going to be able to put up that sort of performance for a third straight week. I like what they've done the last few weeks. I think they've turned a corner from where they were earlier in this season, but 
to string together three performances in a row like this against finals teams or finals adjacent teams would not be easy. And that's why I don't see it happen. Do you see the Suns running away with it then? I see them winning by, you know, like something in the two and a half to three goal range. One thing before we wrap this one up, before we started recording, Ethan pointed me to a really fun Instagram post that the AFL put out all about sibling matchups because there are enough sets of siblings across the AFL to field two entire rosters for an older versus younger brother game. I think you could go back and forth for hours on which of these teams is better, but the general consensus that I came up with is the older brother team is deeper, the younger brother team is more top-heavy. As the younger brother, I would tip the older brother team by maybe 10 points. Just an example of how much talent there would be in this hypothetical game. The younger brother's back six would include Zach Guthrie, Sam DeConing, Nick Dacos, Tom McCartan, Hayden Young. No disrespect to Oscar McDonald, the sixth and final member of that group. Just hasn't been in focus this year with his stress fracture. The back six for the older brothers would be Kadeen Coleman, Jeremy McGovern, Patty McCartan, Jack Henry, Ben McKay, and Harry Hamelberg. I want this organized as a charity game because this is such a cool possible matchup. Also, Chad Warner is listed as an interchange. There's the depth I was telling you about. You know, no real clean way to transition from that to ending this episode. And I'm honestly kind of over plugging everything, so... We're just going to rip one off from Family Guy here and go through the cadences. We really should have just gone with the Peanuts adult route with the trombone with the plunger beam instead. I should have just grabbed it from upstairs. Regardless, you know where to find us. We mentioned it earlier in the episode too. Enjoy round 18. We'll talk to you again once it's over. This should be a fun round to break down in the recap. Expect that early to mid next week. 